Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods from Early Adopter Research, and I'm sitting here today with Donald Farmer, somebody that I've worked with in many different ways over the years. And Donald and I are going to talk about data and analytics strategy. What I wanted to talk to Donald today about was the idea that I've been exploring about the data supply chain. My theory of the data supply chain is uh, essentially that uh, we're entering a world in which people are going to be using products to uh, create their infrastructure. I believe that most enterprises are in the, the business of creating a product-based platform. And so when we apply that vision to analytics and AI, what's happening is that people are going to select these products, they're going to become masters of using them, they're going to be two types of products, those products that are intended to build analytics and, and data infrastructure, and also those products that are intended to do something important for the business. And so we'll find products in both areas. But in both areas, the question is, how are you going to differentiate yourself? And to, to me, the obvious choice is that you can become better at using a productized AI or a productized analytics and, and BI infrastructure by becoming master of your data. And what that means to me is that you become very good at building and running a data supply chain. That data supply chain allows you to find all the data that you have, uh, clean it up, prepare it, move it, combine it into different uh, forms that will support the workloads that you want to support, and then deliver it to those products uh, and then by becoming a master of that data supply chain, you will get a better result from both your analytics tools and from the products that you buy that, that are reliant on data and use AI. So Donald, that's where my starting point is, and I know that you've been studying this and advising companies about how to create a data and analytics strategy. Why don't you riff on that for a little bit and, and, and let me know what your reaction to that is and your perspective, and of course, say hello to everybody. Yeah, thanks very much, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm Donald Farmer. Um, uh, long history in this space in data and analytics. Most recently I was with Click, I was with Microsoft for about 10 years building data and analytics tools there. Um, and now I'm independent, as you said, you know, and, and um, helping companies with their data and analytics strategy. And, and you know, from your intro, there's so much that actually intersects with my work. Um, and I need to unpack some of it. I think the idea um, of, of using tools is very important. I think the supply chain is, is, is critical. Let, let me think of um, two things I think that are important in that space. My theory, if you like, or, or the principle of my business is that every company I talk to is a data company. Whether they know it or not, but most of them know that they're a data company. If you're a data company, then you need to be an analytics company. Um, if you're an analytics company, then you really need to be looking at being an advanced analytics company in order to get advantage out of the data. So my work involves helping companies on that roadmap. How do you move from being a data company to an analytics company to an advanced analytics company? And, and I think that what's interesting about that concept to me is that I believe that you could create a data uh, relevance score for different companies. Because like, mm, for yeah. example, there's some fashion companies where the company works because there's a central creative figure right. that is the one who is making choices, understanding designs and things like that. And people don't want to change the virtuosity of that business. But on the other hand, once they've made the choices, then they can use data to operationalize them. And even the creative process can be fed by data. Mm -hmm. So maybe that company would be a 50 out of 100 in terms of data you know, relevance. You know. And then there's other companies that are 
you know, where there's a higher potential for data to inform decisions. Right. And then at the top of the, the, the loop are the companies where data can not only inform decisions, but also create models that can control business behavior. Sure. And so it, it, it seems like, do you, do, you, do you have different advice for people based on their kind of data relevancy score? Yeah, well, I, I, I kind of push back on the idea that there's one score. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason is, and actually fashion's a great example, because I, I do some work with fashion companies. And if you think of the example that you gave, you've got like a creative central figure, but fashion involves um, you know, a lot of different teams working together. And what you'd find in a, in a company is that different departments, different divisions of that company, Company may have radically different scores. And that's actually something that's important to understand. So for example, the creative team in the fashion company may actually have a pretty low score when it comes to data relevancy and data literacy and how they're using data because they see themselves as primarily not working in that space. On the other hand, the supply chain team who are actually dealing with you know, sourcing the materials, sourcing the, um, the, the, out, you know, the, the contractors, the outsourcers who are going to actually, you know, Make the make the products, uh, create the fashion, um, the shipping companies, the logistics companies. How they get these things into stores on time because fashion's a very time sensitive business. Those people may be just radically informed by data and maybe you know deeply um, engaged with the data and deeply data literate. So you may end up, and this happens nearly every company I talk to. It's not one score; it's a mix of scores. There's there's some parts of the company which are deeply informed, other parts which aren't. And so part of the secret, um, from my point of view, is finding not where the company is as a whole, but where it is in, in, in different sectors and in different divisions in the company, and then working out where each of these divisions should be. So it's not as if there's a single roadmap for the company. There, there's a, there's a, a set of roadmaps, which of course should then form a coherent strategy as a whole. Well, so what do you do when you, you, you arrive at a company, they, you give them your presentation of what you are potentially able to do, and then what are the phases that you go through in trying to help them? You, you mentioned that there were three phases in, 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 you know, in, in, in your, your, your method. Right, yeah, absolutely. So the very first phase is actually just helping to identify the data. What data do you have? Who's using it just now? Um, who could be using it? And is the data fit for purpose? That's, that's pretty important. And, and for me, the critical part of this first stage is enabling a change in mindset. And this relates to your data supply chain concept. Um, enabling a change in mindset for the IT department so that they're no longer, well, I, I say they're no longer data gatekeepers, they become data shopkeepers. And I think this is something we've talked about in the past as well. You know, this, this concept that in, instead of just being the people who control access to the data, the, the IT department has to proactively supply data, which is fit for purpose. Um, and by doing so, not only do they enable the business users to take full advantage of the data, to a certain extent they relieve a burden on themselves of having to manage every aspect of this. Because by creating data which is already fit for purpose and has already been through all the, the various corporate governance um, controls, then to a certain extent they can throw it over the wall to the business users and say, have at it, do what you need to do, because we've done our job of ensuring that it's cleaned and making sure that it's, it's relevant and making sure that it's got the kind of various security and compliance issues. Well, you know, I think that that's a really key point that I think a lot of people get wrong because they put the certain levels of transformation in the wrong place. Right. So, so what I mean by that, I think in almost every data pipeline that you see, there's uh, several levels of data. There's the raw data in the source. Mm -hmm. Then that data is somehow moved or made accessible to 
a, a environment in which it can be used. And, 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 I, and once it's either moved or made accessible, I call that the landed data. Right. Now the data doesn't have to necessarily, you could, if you have an API that can access the raw data, it's been landed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to actually move it like in some data lakes where they actually move the entire data set. But then you go from the, the, the landed data to creating coherent, useful objects, which I call the model data. Mm -hmm. And those mod objects are not intended for a particular purpose, they're intended to be generic, useful concepts, and these, these become the verbs and nouns and language that you right. use to and describe. And they have a business model applied to them. Right, and there may be like three customer objects, one for finance, one mm -hmm. for customer service, one for um, uh, uh, sales, you know. It, 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 sure. there, there may be maybe multiple objects in the, in the landed modeled form. And then you go from that to the various layers of purpose-built data, and so, you know, it seems like what, what, what we've been trying to do in, in a lot of these efforts is to try to allow the, um, the land, the, it, it is to pull back and allow as the, the end users or people close to them to go back deeper into the data and to get as close as possible to the modeling process. Mm. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. What I've found is that there's an inherent complexity to a lot of this data work that really is sort of computer science work. Right. And that, that you want that work informed by the, the requirements of the data people, but, and, and even the data scientists. But, but there's you know, one Hillary Mason who can code and also be a data scientist, and there's a right. hundred people who know what they want, but can't code and do it. So this and is so, so, so how do you advise people about you know, this trade-off of get, where do you put these, these, these layers of transformation. Well, this is where the second phase of what I do comes in. So the first phase is identifying the data and, and, and handling this change in mindset from, from being gatekeepers to shopkeepers. The second phase is if you're a data company, you need to be an analytics company. And part of that, an important part of being an analytics company is understanding the tools that are available to you and, and what tools are appropriate for the business. Because if you're dealing with people who are business literate but not data literate, um, then you have to have a tool which enables them to become data literate, which enables them to um, to perhaps work in business terms, but have the tool handle a lot of the the, the data for them or the data capabilities. Which is where um, you know the BI platforms are. Luckily, where they're getting more and more complete, they're getting more. Um, uh, what, would the, what would the word be? They're, they're getting more effective for a business user in order to do analysis. And in fact, they, they can guide the user through some analytics and through some capabilities. Because you don't want the user to have to worry about things like the cardinality of joins or complexities like that. The BI tool should handle that. So the second kind of phase for me is very often, as you be move from being a data company to being an analytics company, what are the tools and platforms that are going to be relevant to your business? Now. Sometimes that's one tool, and, and for some companies that could be one tool that covers a wide variety of scenarios. Other times it's more than one tool. You know, there are, sometimes it's just appropriate to have different tools for different departments. Sometimes finance needs a different tool, say from a creative team, um, and that's fine. Um, so long as that's done in a governed and managed way and it's done with purpose, not just because it randomly happens. Um, so that's the second phase, is, is trying to you know, work out what the tools are and the analytics requirements that would build around that. And the idea of actually serving specific objects to these, to these users. Um, and that's what the shopkeeper role is, making sure these objects are available and then that the tools are available to consume them. Um, that's pretty important. And then, have you seen that uh, uh, most people who you consult with end up with some sort of cataloging layer, or do they end up with multiple cataloging layers? Increasingly, 
way they're ending up in the cataloging layer. Um, it used to be we'd have had, I mean, a few years ago, we'd have talked about an NDM, a master data management layer. I guess we'd also have talked maybe about having a data warehouse, but increasingly catalogs are taking on that role um, and because very often the, the data warehouse is there in order to not only provide um, access to data with business metadata, but also to sort of impose a model. Catalogs don't so much impose a model. They don't necessarily tell you how all this data relates in terms of calculation. Um, but they do provide you with the business metadata that helps you to understand the data and its potential uses. So that's very, very powerful. Um, do I see multiple catalogues? Well, yes, but, but not in companies which have taken the, the, the governance uh, seriously. One of the issues about governance that people overlook is that governance isn't about, it isn't about getting the right answers, it's about using the right processes. And people so give me an example of the difference uh, of, of the, 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 the bad governance and the good governance. Right. Well, let's say we want to, um, let's say we want to do a targeted campaign um, for, for a particular group of customers. Now, good governance would be um, knowing that those customers were, um, we've all had these emails about cookies and we've all had all these emails, had these emails about being, you know, do you want to you know, be available in this system and, and you, you want to opt out. So good governance would be, here's the people we're allowed to target. Um, they're permissible, they're, they're well chosen, and you know we, we're allowed to contact them and um, run that campaign built around that. Bad governance would be, hey, here's a really effective campaign we can build with a great data model, but you know what, we just grabbed that data out of the system and nobody really governed whether, whether it was allowed or not. On the one hand, you may have a very accurate model precisely because it's got information that you're not supposed to be using for, for doing marketing because you've added more attributes, maybe attributes about gender or race or attributes about um, all sorts of things that you could be in there that, that you're, are not permissible for you to use. You've built a better model, but you're not allowed to use it. And in fact, if it turns out that that model makes some mistakes or it turns out that somebody discovers you're using that model, it could be trouble for your company. So the governance is poor, even if the model is good. On the other hand, you may have a model which is you know, reasonably good, but well-governed, and that's, in business terms, would be better for you to use that. Got it. And so now, one of the things that I've been trying to understand is it goes along with this level of what we talked about, the landed data, the model data, the purpose-built data. And that is the level of productization of some of the tools and the, the analytics mm, that you get. Yeah. Yep. So I created a framework uh, for productized analytics where I, I talked about the most productized form of an analytic, mm -hmm. which I called the value meal, you know, like <laughs> yeah, at McDonald's. Exactly. So you go and you say, I want this. Hopefully you the get happy it. meal. Yeah, 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 you get it. <laughs> And then the, the, the second level is like the artisanal brew. This is going to Starbucks and going, hey, I want my skinny uh, decaf uh, latte, you know, uh, with extra foam and a high temperature or whatever. Right. And, and you, you can make a lot of Clearly choices. Clearly you're not from Seattle. You'd have had that just down pat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it was a little slow. I my double tall non-fat laddie with room, please. There you go. And then... Um, then below that you have like dinner in a box, like this is like Blue Apron. So the idea oh, right, of, yeah. you know, you get the ingredients, you get guidance about what to do with them, but you, you assemble them and, and finish the job. Mm -hmm. And then the final is the custom kitchen, you know, which is where you're given a platform with raw materials and pretty much you could do anything. Right. And so what, how do you navigate, because it seems like that the, the highest value comes from in most organizations comes from really good value meals that really affect a lot of people that were no longer, were, were previously not using data. Mm. But, but it's not like you can, product development, product management 
it's hard. It's not like if, if, if there were, you know, if it was so easy, they probably would already be using a spreadsheet and right. sharing, but, it, but it's not that easy. And so how do you ad advise people about, you know, where to spend their time on these l different levels of productization and how to gradually kind of grow competency in, 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 in handling and understanding where each level applies to their problems. Yeah, so that, that's it's great. This is really comes into the third phase of what I do, which is when you start looking at advanced analytics. And one of the, the, the key elements of advanced analytics is to understand the difference between tools and techniques. And, and what I'm looking at there, typically when I'm talking to people, is are your data teams, especially your advanced analytics teams, which are they going to be focused on? Do they want tools or techniques? Many data scientists are focused on techniques. They're focused on the algorithms, and they don't particularly care about the tools. They want R. They, they want R, mm -hmm. and they're working in R, and it's the algorithm that matters to them. Right, so they're, they're, they're happy. Give me my R, give me my Python, yeah. give me some object storage. I, I've met and people, and I'll not name names, but I've met people at companies which are highly competitive with Google who use Google TensorFlow because that's a great algorithmic set for, for, for doing a particular forms of learning. And they will use that even though they see Google as a competitor because that's the best tool for the job. So they're focused on the technique rather than necessarily, you know, I want to choose a tool. They say, I want to choose a technique and then what supports that. But then as you come down, and, and maybe come down the, the level is perhaps the, the wrong way to put it, but as you get to different levels of skill, actually having a tool which encapsulates a set of techniques um, can be very valuable for you. You may uh, you may know the techniques, or you may know of the techniques, so you understand regression and you understand clustering, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you um, are, are fully able to, to use them in a freeform way. And so having a tool which encapsulates them can it really help. So, and that's where you, that's it, to me, that's when you start going in, into the direction that I mentioned at the beginning, and that is you're be a sophisticated consumer, right? but you're looking for someone else to productize that technique for you. Exactly. And so, it seems to me in, in these evaluations, you have, to, you have to be sophisticated enough to go, hey, you know, I'm not going to have a coffee with half and half and lemon juice, you know, right. because it's not going to work out. It's not going to be very good. No, it's not. But, 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 but sometimes you get, you know, products are not well formed or right. you're going to be using them in combination and it's like coffee, you know, half and half and lemon juice. Well, yeah, so I, one of the issues with products is that, um, you know, Whenever you build a product, and I've built many, many products, you know, you're always enabling some scenarios and closing off others. And in fact, that's almost the nature of productization. So it's what is the user going to get the best value out of, and let's focus on that path. And very often that requires you to close off other paths for the user, that they, they can't go there. One of the key things for defining a product is what's the negative space? What are you not going to do? Because you can do anything. I mean, ultimately right. it's ones and zeros. Get them in the right order, you can do anything. But what are you not going to do? And so you often your strategy has to be around defining that negative space of where you're not going to go. Choosing the right product, choosing the right tool for a particular business is aligning your negative space with the product's negative space. And very often that's actually more important than lining up capabilities. Customers often want to say, well, what are the capabilities? But what that often excludes is where are you going in the future? You build a tool that's not going to grow with you. But understanding, you know, where am I, where am I going? Where am I not likely to go? And what are the tools that best fit that pattern? Let's, let's put some meat on that, the bones of this idea. Um, what's a good example of the idea of negative space uh, 
and how uh, you may have made, what's, what's a good you know, positive and negative example of choosing and analyzing negative space? Well, let's look at, it, um, for example, a business user tool focused on analytics, which has some basic data preparation capabilities built in. And increasingly you see this, you know, there's some, there's some data preparation capabilities built in. But that's not the same as a full ETL tool. A tool which is capable of running, you know, multiple parallel streams, which is capable of optimizing across multiple servers how data is, is integrated, which is capable of performing high, you know, very very high level of aggregations and scaling that out across multiple servers, and is capable of scheduling that process and restarting it if it breaks and providing all sorts of error conditions for handling it. Well, that's a very sophisticated tool. There's a really important need for it in enterprise data management, but it's not the tool you put on a desktop for somebody who just wants to pull a few data sources together and, and get analyzing. And so, you know, the tool that enables you to pull data sources together, data um, wrangling as it's sometimes called nowadays, but doesn't include all those ETL capabilities is probably a more valuable tool for that scenario. On the other hand, you might be looking at ETL capabilities um, for your enterprise servers, which are you know really sophisticated. Do they have an easy-to-use business user interface? No. Well, that's fine. You don't need to go there because it's not intended for a business user, and that's that, that, that's okay. So very often, defining your audience is not necessarily a question of what things can do, what tools can do, but what they can't do. Sometimes it gives you a better definition. So now, when you get to the point where you're trying to introduce analytics to advanced analytics, mm. to a wider group in a company, you have this sort of sense of magic, you know, where you know, you, you've created a system that now gives me a prediction or recommendation, mm -hmm. some sort of important signal that somebody has to have confidence on and act on. And I find that you know, many of these systems do not have much transparency. I mean, this is sure. a problem that's being worked on quite aggressively in AI. But, but even, even if you have a system that is theoretically transparent, the actual mechanisms are really hard to explain. How do you, how do you build trust in these advanced analytics so that they actually become deployed and used? That, so the, the trust question is a, is, a, is a very important one, and I think there's three ways in which trust can be built, or can be explained, if you like. Um, I'll, I'll come back. Even if you don't think about it as machine learning, a friend of mine, Scott Davis, once said very insightfully that uh, people don't trust data, they trust other people. And what he meant by that is if you get data in a report, you don't analyze every, you know, every calculation in there, you don't track back its lineage back to the original SAP system or whatever, you trust that the person who built that report did a good job. Or you don't, in which case you use another report. But it's, a, it's ultimately a human trust. It could be technically validated, but it's a human trust. Now, if you apply that to machine learning, machine learning makes a prediction, how do you trust it? There are, to my mind, there's three ways in which you could trust it. The first is if you actually get the technical explanation, which in some cases is super difficult to do. How do you explain how TensorFlow came to a, a, a specific prediction? Very, very difficult to do that. But in some cases, algorithms can be explained, and there are various techniques for explaining algorithms. Um, so there's that, there's the technical explanation. The second is what I call a relative, oh, I, I call that sometimes the absolute explanation. We can actually explain how this happened. The second explanation is what I would call a relative explanation, which is given a set of circumstances which are similar, this is where you fit in. This is where the answer fits in. So for example, somebody complains that the, the, the computer has said no and not given them a loan that they applied for. How would you explain that? 
you might not be able to explain the algorithm, but you could actually run a Monte Carlo simulation of all the inputs, randomly varying all the inputs, all the variables that were assessed, and say, hey, you know, in in 40% of cases you got the loan, but in 60% you didn't. Um, that doesn't give you an explanation of why you didn't get it, but it does show that, on you know, generally speaking, you were not eligible for this loan. Um, if it comes out more dramatically, like 80% of the time you weren't going to get it, then yeah, don't bother replying. You know, so that's a relative explanation. It's not an absolute f um, explanation, but it gives you a good sense. The third way of of um, trusting something is actually more related to human trust. You effectively would develop a theory of mind about how the machine is working. In the same way as I have a theory of mind about how Dan works and um, you know I understand the, the way in which you think and therefore I'm likely to, to trust or not trust you know, various kind of predictions that you might make because I know how your mind works. In the same way, just through experience we'll trust some of these systems because we learn how they work under different circumstances. Um, I don't understand, for example, how Google Maps algorithms work. I have, I have no idea, but I know my neighborhood pretty well, and I kind of trust it because I, know, I trust the results it gives. So when I'm trying to navigate to somewhere new, I can see kind of, I don't know exactly why Google took me down that road, but I know generally, in, in, in general terms, how it works, just from experience. Yes, so I and, and, and I've heard, that when I talked to a while ago, Marketo about the, their lead scoring. Oh yeah, great uh, example. Um, yeah. They said that you know we don't have to worry about how the lead scoring was. All we have to do is put the lead scoring on each uh, lead, and then let the uh, salespeople see whether it matters or not. And right. frankly, most of the time they realize that it does matter, and they start using it pretty quickly because they like the fact that they get better results with right. the higher scored leads. And, and, and they learn to trust it and, uh, in a sort of intuitive, and it's just a theory of mind. They understand how it works without actually understanding all the details. So yeah, I know the kind of scores I'm going to get out of this and it's useful enough and I'll use it. Well, good. And so let's just end with um, uh, uh, a kind of a speculative uh, uh, advice sort of question and that is, which, uh, when you encounter um, a new client and you start talking to them, and, and, and what do you find uh, are the myths about data and analytics that you have to dispel quickly in order to start making progress? <laughs> the, the very first myth is generally that their data is good enough, and, um, or, or that they have the data that they need. And very often, you know, you, you dig into it and their data is poor quality and it's, it's not well governed and it doesn't have the... Um, the insight that they, they think they're going to get from it. Um, that's, that, that's really the, the number one problem. And the second problem that I come across is that um, very often they, they have a misconception about the role of data in their, in their organization. They don't think of themselves as a company that is an analytics company or, or sometimes they don't think of themselves as a data company. I was talking to a paint manufacturer recently who said, well, we have data. Um, but we're not really a data company, we're a paint company. So, you, know, you realize that actually there's a tremendous amount of value that you can get from your data. In fact, data could almost be another line of business for you. They say, well, how would that count? Well, data, selling data back to your suppliers, for example, or building a supply chain where you're actually informing your suppliers with data about what it is you need and therefore you can improve their efficiencies and therefore selling or monetizing or in some way uh, productizing the data that you use with your supply chain is another line of business for you. And that actually turned out to be a pretty successful project. Any other myths? 
Oh, the other myth is that, um, <laughs> and uh, we often talk about this, it's about you know, artificial intelligence. Um, and, and people see artificial intelligence as something that may happen in the future. Oh, yeah, we're not quite there yet. And I keep having to tell people, look, you've got artificial intelligence in your pocket and you use it every day. It's there on your cell phone. The idea that artificial intelligence is, is out there in the future and is actually out of scope for you is simply not true. It's a, it's a daily part of your life. It's a daily part of your business, and the very fact that you don't understand that is something that's getting in the way of your optimizing your, your, your use of technology. Excellent. Well, this has been a fun conversation, as usual. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you very much.